I encourage you, if you would, to take your Bible and turn in it with me to the second chapter of Paul's epistle to the Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. This is a wonderful chapter, Philippians chapter 2. It's one of my favorite chapters in all of Holy Scripture. And uh, I really particularly like the emphasis upon humility. Humility is a Christian grace, but it is a grace that uh, needs more expression, I would argue, among the people of God. But let's Look here, that aside, I want us to really focus upon the Lord Jesus this morning. Philippians chapter 2, please follow in your Bibles as I read the first 11 verses. Hear the word of the true and living God. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant or really better than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even, the, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then one verse from the gospel according to Luke, the second chapter and verse 7 and she, speaking of Mary, brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. All flesh is as grass and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower thereof falls away. But the word of our God shall stand forever. If you would, pray with me and for me for the ministry of the word. Let us pray. 
Holy Father, we bow before you now in the consciousness of the obligation at this point of our service to seek the gracious assistance from your, your hand in sending forth the Spirit of truth to awaken and quicken our hearts that we may receive with alacrity the ministry of the Word of God to the prophet of our never-dying souls and to the praise of your eternal glory. Though, Lord, I bow before you not only because I ought to this morning, but because of a felt sense of my need to as well. O oh, Holy Father, I need to cry out to you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. For you have warned us through your Old Testament prophet, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. Come, O oh gracious Spirit, grant me the strength of utterance, O oh Lord, to speak with clarity, to speak with unction from above, that you may be pleased to impart grace to these, your dear people who hear, and to the end that the hunger of your people for your word may be satisfied thereby, and that the Lord Jesus Christ might be exalted in our midst. For we offer this our prayer in his name. Amen. Some years back, I came across the poem, and by the way, I don't usually do this sort of thing, but some years back, I came across a poem by one of the lesser-known British poets by the name of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. And this poem illustrates in a very beautiful, poignant, indeed touching way, the truth to which I want to draw our attention this morning. Please listen carefully to the words of this poem. I know it's not always easy to listen to a poem recited. Bear with me if you would. There fared the mother driven forth out of an inn to roam, in the place where she was homeless. All men are home. The crazy stable close at hand with shaking timber and shifting sand grew a stronger thing to abide and stand than the square stones of Rome. For men are homesick in their homes and strangers under the sun. And they lay their heads in a foreign land whenever the day is done. Here we have battle and blazing eyes, and chance and honor, and high surprise. But our homes are under miraculous skies, where the Yule tale was begun. A child in a foul stable, where the beasts feed in foam. Only where he was homeless are you and I at home. We have hands that fashion and heads that know, but our hearts we lost how long ago in a place no chart nor ship can show under the sky's dome. This world is 
wild as an old wife's tale, and strange the plain things are. The earth is enough, and the air is enough for our wonder and our war. But our rest is as far as the fire drake swings, and our peace is put in impossible things. We're clashed and thundered unthinkable things, round an incredible star, to an open house in the evening. Home shall all men come, to an older place than Eden, to a taller town than Rome, to the end of the way of the wandering star, to the things that cannot be and that are, to the place where God was homeless and all men are at home. The Bible tells us in the first chapter of the Gospel of John that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and that all things were made through Him and without Him nothing was made that was made. And yet this same One the eternal word who called worlds into being by the sheer word of his power said to his disciples on the road to his death, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Incredible, is it not? that in the very place the Creator made homes for His creatures, He Himself was homeless, and you and I are at home. Perhaps nowhere else in the New Testament is this as wonderfully and majestically described for us as the words that Paul wrote to the Christians in Philippi. Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 7 form our text for today. For you'll notice that the apostle begins with a very practical down-to-earth consideration. He takes his cue as it were from the circumstances present among the believers there at Philippi. They were dear to them, to him. He loved them and he was concerned for them. But they were not entirely united in their sentiments. Some folk had had words with other people in the church. And here and elsewhere in this epistle, the apostle feels constrained to rebuke them for this and to point out to them a better way. Your attitude, he is saying, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Christians, your calling, he is saying, is to imitate. It is to reflect the posture of your Lord. It is to reflect the mindset of your Lord. But then he proceeds to speak of the nature of Christ, of who he is. Now, translators and linguists and commentators have for a long time struggled in an effort to figure out precisely what it was that the Apostle Paul meant when he wrote these words. And to be sure, a sermon is no place, mind you, to begin to wax technical. And I have no mind 
of doing so this morning. But I can tell you that if this statement means anything at all, it simply means this, that in his pre-existence, Jesus Christ was very God of very God, to coin the phrase from the Nicene Creed. He himself said, you'll remember, I and my Father are one. And what Paul says, or when he says that he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, what Paul wants for us to understand here is that for Christ, it was not presumption. It was not impertinence. It was not arrogance or insolence for him to claim equality with the Father, for he was that forever and ever. But this splendid, wonderful statement of Christological truth, this truth about Christ, forms a preface. That is, it prepares the way for something which causes, if one stops to ponder it for just a little while, the mind to stagger and to reel in the face of it. And it is verse 7 where Paul says such extraordinary, striking, and staggering things upon which I want for us to reflect this morning. First of all, and this is if you're following the outline given to you in the bulletin. First of all, you see in verse 7 that Paul says something to us here about the character of our Lord's humiliation. He says here of this one who by his very nature was God and who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped that he made himself of no reputation. That is, he made himself nothing. It's correctly translated in the English Standard Version. He emptied himself. Such a remark puzzles us. And people have been puzzled, if not confused, by that remark for a very long time. What did Paul mean to communicate when he said that the Logos, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, that he emptied himself? Well, some have suggested that Paul is intimating here that Christ abandoned his deity, that he gave up being God when he became enfleshed, that for a time, at any rate, he ceased to be God. Well, such a suggestion is, of course, utterly unthinkable, especially in the light of the New Testament as a whole. How could God ever cease to be God? The very thought itself is preposterous. But even though we would repudiate and reject that theory, that interpretation is wholly unacceptable. Nonetheless, we should do nothing to minimize or qualify the radical nature of what the Apostle Paul is declaring to us in this passage. How in the world can we begin to grasp, to understand this statement in all of its height and depth and length and breadth? Personally, I have been helped 
in my own understanding of what is intended here by making the connection in my own mind to that event that we read in three of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, of the transfiguration of our Lord Jesus Christ, when with the inner circle of the three, Peter, James, and John, he went up into a mountain and there spent some time together with them. And while they were there, to the astonishment of his disciples, he was joined by two Old Testament heroes of the faith, Moses and Elijah. And they spoke with him about his coming passion and death. And the word about his passion and death, the word used by Luke in that particular instance is the word exodus, his departure, surely an allusion to that Old Testament redemptive event when God wrought salvation and deliverance for his people Israel to free them from their bondage in Egypt. But this event, the transfiguration, helps me with our present text. And what I have in mind is the fact that the transfiguration is described for us in the gospel accounts. Something of Jesus' essential deity was permitted for a little while to shine through the veil of his humanity. Even his clothing, we're told, began to glow and to glisten. It became as white as the purest snow, Mark tells us in his account of chapter 9 and verse 3. And though in the days of our Lord's flesh he did not ordinarily present, display himself in this way, there on the mount, with Moses and Elijah, as well as Peter, James, and John, who he was from all eternity became overtly apparent for a few brief moments, to which Peter, when referring to this event, when he says in the second epistle, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And Paul is telling us here that the Lord Jesus, when he emptied himself, that is, when he threw a veil of flesh across his deity, suspended and laid aside for a while some of his divine prerogatives, laid aside the exercise of some privileges of deity as God, that Jesus became one with us. He became what he had never been without ceasing to be what he ever was. That in the first place. But then in the second place, Paul goes on to say something more because he speaks here also of the reality of our Lord's humiliation. We're told that he took to himself the form of a servant, literally the form of a bond servant. You see, from all eternity, his being was in the form of God. But he took to himself the form of a servant, the very nature of a servant. 
Now, it should be pointed out, certainly, that what is described here is a voluntary act on the part of the Lord Jesus, an act of his own will. He determined to do what he did. He who was equal with God made himself for a time something under God. Indeed, as the psalmist sings and tells us in the 8th Psalm, in verse 5, he was made a little lower than the angels. And there is a sense in which we may say reverently that he was brought down again by an act of his own will to a condition lower than the ordinary circumstances of human beings, of men and women. And the psalmist again sings in the 22nd Psalm, a psalm regarding the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there he says, But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. And the great prophet Isaiah himself, in what is probably the most evangelical chapter of the entire Old Testament, the 53rd chapter tells us that he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And again to his own disciples, while urging them to follow his own example, he says to them, and whoever among you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For the Son of Man, even the Son of Man, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Then in the third place, I want you to notice that Paul here likewise says something about the mode or the manner of our Lord's humiliation. The way in which by an act of his own will, he emptied himself. He came, says Paul, in the likeness of men. He became man. How could this be? We, we do not understand it is, after all, a holy and a divine miracle of which the apostle speaks here. In the beginning, John said, the word was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But that one whose glory the disciples beheld and who was full of grace and truth was likewise the Word made flesh who dwelt among us. Paul says that he was made man. Now elsewhere he makes a similar statement of sorts but gives us a quite different description. He says that God sent his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, that is sinful human flesh. On account of sin, he condemned 
sin in the flesh. And an important distinction is to be drawn between what is said here in Philippians 2 and what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8 in verse 3. Because, you see, Jesus Christ came fully human into the world. He made himself one of us, one with us. And he was like us in all points except one. He was in the language of the writer to the Hebrews, holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. Because he was also Emmanuel, God with us. And that was necessary. It was necessary for him to take human form because he came as the Lamb of God to bear away the sin of the world. And his purpose and design for coming was to fulfill his Father's plan of redemption, to deal with our sinful human natures and to set us free from our sin. And what all this meant for him, we can understand, you and I, from the descriptions given to us in the narratives of the gospel accounts. Well, what I've given you this morning thus far is wonderful, it's glorious, it's beautiful, it's very orthodox doctrine and truth. And we cannot help but be struck and moved by these truths. However, we, you and I, we need to make a connection in order to establish a contact between all of that and where we are today and where we shall be tomorrow. And so I want to try to do that, Lord helping me using three words. And the first word is giving. The first word is giving. If the Lord gave, if the Lord gave so much for us, then should we, you and I, not also want to give? What better way to express our gratitude to the Lord. I remind you this morning that the festival of the incarnation is a festival of giving. But instead, we in our own day have turned it into a festival of getting. And that notion, of course, is bred into our children at a very young age. Now, to be sure, there is nothing wrong, nothing wrong whatsoever about getting. I have to confess, I'm pretty mercenary in this whole endeavor myself. I, I like to receive gifts. Who doesn't? There's nothing wrong with getting nothing. It is a delightful experience to receive at, script, at Christmas time or even on one's birthday a special gift which is sensibly chosen and is especially appropriate to one's own self. And I'm sure that none of us, least of all me, is disinclined, unwilling to receive a gift of that nature. But the celebration of the Incarnation is not a celebration of getting. It is a celebration of giving. Because God gave His Son 
in response to his love for sinful humanity, we too should likewise desire to give. You who are parents of children, you have a great opportunity at just this season of the year to teach them, your little ones, your teenage son or daughter, the meaning of giving. You can suggest, and I suspect that many of you have already done this, that your child give at least one gift to someone else. Perhaps someone who is not likely to receive a gift from anyone. In any case, surely it is wise and proper to take advantage of what this season teaches us and to make such a gesture as that. And then, of course, you have the opportunity to give as well. To give to those you love, a parent, a husband, a wife, a child, a brother, a sister, or a friend. And that's good. But then to give it to someone to whom no one else is going to give anything. Remember, the measure of our love to Christ is gauged by how we treat people who can do absolutely nothing for us. That is the measure of your love to Christ. How do you treat people who can do nothing for you? Jesus said, but if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. The second word is self-emptying. The passage at which we've been looking this morning is all about self-emptying, is it not? The Lord Jesus emptied himself for us. He made himself that our mindset, our attitude should be the same as that of the Lord Jesus Christ. You should be prepared to empty yourself or to bring it down to where we can all understand to humble yourself. To humble yourself before others. You know, we're always thinking of advance, of progress, of climbing the ladder, of walking up the steps, of making it to the very top, the very pinnacle of the mountain. We're like that. We're upwardly mobile. Parents take it for granted that part of their rearing of their children is to teach them to stand on their own feet. And we tend to desire a better position, more money, a greater degree of prominence, perhaps. But Jesus took the reverse path. He took the opposite course altogether. He emptied himself. He laid aside the exercise of certain divine prerogatives and he, that he had every right to retain, but he let them go. I believe very strongly that you and I, we should deploy our talents and gifts that God has granted us. But at the same time with that, 
we should deploy, we should use our gifts by following the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, to open ourselves to others, to place ourselves at the disposal of others. Indeed, we must even be prepared to humble ourselves for the sake of others. You know, the sad thing about many Christians today is that they profess to know Christ, but they know nothing of genuine humility. Genuine humility. Paul defines that for us in this very passage, does it not? How does he define humility? He does it this way. Esteem others better than ourselves. Esteem others better than ourselves. What is the tendency of the human nature by nature? It's the very opposite, is it not? To regard ourselves as better than the next person. Paul, Paul says, no way. You're to esteem others better than yourself. Paul tells us that in the opening verses of chapter 2. Some of you know this morning that you have relationships that are in danger of being ruptured, of being broken. And others have friendships that are almost, if not there, at the point of lapsing, of ending, because you've tended to that relationship so little or so poorly. Still others know very well what a genuine, painful breach in a human relationship can produce because there's been a terrible strain between you and that person who has been dearer than perhaps anyone else in the world has been dearer to you. And perhaps an alienation, an estrangement, a separation, a divorce perhaps has occurred. What are you to do in the face of something like that? Well, Jesus sets before us in this passage his own example. And there's also some help in the Old Testament, and I'm going to give you the reference to that because I think you ought to write it down and memorize it if you haven't done so already. Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 1, where we're told, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word or a grievous word stirs up Anger. That's a good proverb to remember. You've had the experience of the power of what the writer of Proverbs says here. You've been indignant at times, perhaps at a time when you felt like you had been ill-used by another person. And you've been indignant because of that. And you've been, you feel as though you have been put upon, that you've been victimized, that you've suffered some kind of inequality or inequity and injustice. And you have determined to blow your stack and to give whatever, what's left of your mind, a piece of it to that person. And all when you did so, you expected that you were going to be answered in kind. 
You anticipated a certain degree of retaliation. And as you anticipated a certain degree of retaliation, you prepared to counter that with yet a strong, strong verbal blow as well. Now then, what really happened? Have you ever had the occasion of being angry like that at someone only to have that person turn and look at you and say, I'm sorry. You're right. I was wrong. That should never have happened. And God helping me, I'll see to it that it never happens again. And then how did you feel when someone gave you that response, well, perhaps you remained indignant because some people feel, after all, there's something to be gained from a good argument. But at the same time, you had to feel ashamed of yourself because though you were put upon, you put upon that other person. And rather than answering you as you spoke, in the first instance to them, you received a soft answer in return. Much wiser pastor than myself once told me, he said, David, always let your words be soft and sweet because you never know when you're going to have to eat them. It seems to me that there's a great deal in that from which we can learn and from which we need to learn. Perhaps the time has come in your own life when you need to say to somebody, you know, things are not right between us. And perhaps they can never be as they once are, were, but they do not have to continue as they are. I am sorry. I was wrong. Will you for Christ's sake forgive me? It may be that you do not need to go that far. Possibly what you simply need to do is to write a letter or pick up the telephone and make a call. Something to reestablish a relationship that has been valuable to you, but which is presently in sad disrepair. And then my final word of application is the word faith. I say faith, but I could just as well use the word trust or obedience or of yielding. In other words, what is your response this morning to the self-emptying, self-humiliation of the Lord Jesus Christ coming into this world when you think of the Lord of the universe being reduced to the dark confines of a maiden virgin's womb for nine months, constrained, moreover, to a tiny baby's body, forced to draw sustenance from his mother's breast, held helpless in her arms. 
How do you respond to the message of a God who is prepared to turn his back on supernal grandeur and glory in order to stoop to the depths of being laid in a manger, a common feeding trough, surrounded by the bleeding of sheep and the foul stench of cattle? Is there any other response appropriate to that, to that, than that of yielding, than that of utter capitulation and humble acknowledgement that this stem of Jesse, that this grand and glorious figure who is eternal God, but also Mary's son, is our King and our Savior and our Lord. Sometimes I fear that the sheer sentimentality of Christmas obscures and overshadows the truth of the gospel. How splendid it would be if this year for you, it marked your life history as a time of new beginning, of doing what you've postponed doing. That of yielding to Christ, of falling as the shepherds and the wise men did at his feet. Remember, dear friends, he became homeless, homeless in this world that you and I might have a home with him forever. Remember, as the Apostle Paul encouraged us to do elsewhere, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be rich. Let us pray.